This is a Federal News Network podcast. It may only be a matter of time before artificial intelligence technologies become relatively common in workplaces, but that prospect raises concerns ranging from privacy to possible bias and much more. Our next guest thinks public sector employers can help solve some of those concerns by becoming responsible early adopters of AI for workforce decisions. Hodan Omar is a policy analyst at the Information Technology Innovation Foundation's Center for Data Innovation. She's the author of a new paper on AI in the workplace, and she joins us now to talk about it. I think the obvious, most logical place to start is is talk us through a little bit what, what the most interesting applications for AI in the workforce context really are at this point, both both in terms of what's actively in use or what what seems to be right around the corner that could seem really beneficial. Yes. So I think that the the place where or the part of the the kind of workforce decision area where it's being used the most is the hiring part of it. So the hiring process is really where AI is being used the most. And it's being used in a number of different ways. Um, For one, AI can be used to target and personalize job advertisements. So if you think of the platform ZipRecruiter or LinkedIn, um, they have these features which can suggest job postings to candidates based on other candidates who employers have already rated highly. Um, Another use case is in CV passing. So AI services can essentially read through CVs for keywords. But as AI is developing, they're getting smarter. And the smarter ones are actually using something called semantic search technology, which allows you to pick out concepts. So if you are an employer and you are looking for, uh, you know, you want to pass CVs for the kind of key term IT security, um, the kind of more developed AI systems aren't necessarily just looking for that keyword. They're looking for that concept. So any kind of synonym or anything that people might have put related to that will also come up um, as suggestions. But I think one of the most interesting AI applications I've come across is one that's been um, developed to help veterans find employment. So the um, US Departments of Labor, Defense and Veterans Affairs put out this challenge to the private sector to fund the development of an AI system that could match the really unique skills of veterans to jobs. Um, Because vets often have these really unique skills that are valuable to employers, um, but they can be hard to translate. And so this is an example, I think, of federal agencies really looking to AI to solve a kind of mission-specific workforce problem in a really kind of interesting way. That does sound innovative. I I was actually going to ask about uh, applying some of this stuff in the public sector because not just the federal government, but a lot of, I think, state and local governments, too, tend to have requirements or at least habits that cause them to do all of their recruiting and job posting on a single centralized website, which makes some of that targeting more difficult. Are, are there ways you can use AI even in that context where you're running everything through one web portal? Um, I, I definitely think so, because if, if you think of um, platforms like LinkedIn, that applies to you know a number of different um, people and in different, you know, different employers are all using this one platform, but for their own kind of services and for, the, for their own particular needs. Um, so I, I definitely think that's that's an option. One of the big areas that your paper gets into is is the biases that that we all have in the existing process that that can sometimes be amplified or mitigated by AI. So so what are the things that both public sector and private sector hiring uh, activities need to be thinking through to make sure that they get some of the benefits of AI when re- to, to reduce bias and and not amplify bias? Yeah. So I think I think there's a couple reasons why AI systems can kind of amplify biases. One of those reasons is that they they are just more complex. You know, they can be, you know, I've discussed some of the 
perhaps simpler ones, but um, you know, there are also facial recognition systems and um, AI systems that are looking at you know video recordings and audio recordings and kind of extracting things from those. And those can be really, really complicated. Uh, and the other side of it is scalability. So if you have a biased human employer, they might just be looking at 100 CVs, but an AI system might be looking at thousands and thousands of them. Um, but on the other hand, as you said, um, these systems can actually help employers create fairer employment practices um, at, that actually do promote diversity and inclusion. And I, I do think it's something that should really be a priority for government agencies. There was this recent study that came out um, that was in the New York Times that said that black women were half as likely to be hired for state and local government jobs than white men. Um, and so a couple of the ways that AI can, can kind of mitigate um, some of those issues is um, it can look at a job description that might be written by a human and look for words that may discourage certain groups from applying. So research shows that women apply at a lower rate for jobs in male-dominated fields when those job descriptions use words typically associated with um, stereotypes. So, you know, think of male stereotypes like strong, leader, and determined. By swapping those words uh, for more neutral terms, they can actually attract some groups um, that, that wouldn't have otherwise applied. Um, and also they can, they, can, they can use AI systems to redact demographic and socioeconomic indicators um, from, from job applications to combat unconscious bias. Um, and also, you know, just outside of the hiring side of things, employers can also use AI and analytics to kind of evaluate their compensation processes, promotion, training, termination practices to ensure that they are um, fair and unbiased. One of the key points that your paper also makes is that you're, you're urging governments to be early adopters of AI. Are, are there obvious places beyond some of the, the, the hiring processes that we've already talked about for governments to start with AI? I, I think that VETS example was a good one because it's an example of where agencies are starting with a problem that really benefits their employees or prospective employees. I think where AI technologies offer clear employee benefits or employee values are the best place for kind of government agencies to start because um, the workers are more likely to embrace them in spite of any concerns that they might have. Um, so, you know, how can a government agency use AI to um, help their workforce um, manage uh, their mental health or wellness, how can they match them to find the right jobs, how can they um, you know, use AI to ensure that continued training matches their speed because you know, not all employees, um, you know, the kind of current uh, ongoing training assumes that employees kind of go at a fixed pace but some people need to go slower, some people need to go faster and so these are all examples where it's here's how AI is going to benefit you um, as opposed to this is how we're using AI to monitor you or this is how we're using AI in those other ways because it can um, kind of build on this trust that employees have with their employer. And I think the other side of it is really about being transparent about the use of AI in the workplace. I think one of the big concerns that employees have um, is that these systems are being used without their knowledge. So there was this report that came out in the UK that said 50% of UK employees believe that um, companies are using AI systems that they're not aware of. So just you know, starting from a place of, of transparency, I think, is also really important. Yeah, let's stick on that transparency piece for a little bit, because this is, this is a little bit unique in the public sector, right? I mean, not only do you need your workforce to be able to trust the employer and trust the algorithms, 
public sector hiring managers are, are kind of uniquely accountable as public entities to make sure that they're not just not running afoul of EEO rules, et cetera, but that they're following merit system principles, that they have the public's trust and not just their their workers' trust. But one of the things the paper, I think, tries to do is balance the, the need to have that trust that you talked about while not having so much oversight that you stifle innovation. So what's the right way, you think, to, to, to strike that balance, especially in the public sector context, with those additional considerations? I, I think that's, that's a great question. Um, I think that the public sector employers really need to build and disclose to the employees and also to the public the various oversight and accountability measures that they have to be able to ensure the kind of accuracy and effectiveness of their AI systems. I think one of the important parts of it is is that what you said is really right, that, that it, the responsibility is on them as the users of these systems. I think sometimes it can the onus can seem to fall on the AI developer, but that developer can never know truly exactly how a user of its system is going to, to use that system. And so it's up to the um, user of that system, whether that be a public sector uh, entity, to show how they are able to catch unfair or inaccurate decisions. And also, I think being able to, to have a process in place that if I, as an employee, believe that a decision has been made you know, about me that I think is unfair, what is the process that I can follow up to let my employer know that? Um, you know, uh, one way that, that um, employers can do this is by building more worker-facing tools. You know, for example, if you are using an automated tool to extract information from resumes, applicants often can't see that information in their, applica- in their application has been passed correctly. So can we implement effective ways for uh, individuals to provide oversight and feedback that the AI systems make? Because that's going to really help build that trust. But I think especially in the public sector, there's always going to be a, a temptation on the part of the user or by oversight bodies to put a little bit at least of accountability on the AI developer. Because they're, they're, the feeling I think is going to be, well, we can't see what's happening inside that black box. So it's very hard for us to evaluate whether or not this system is making more biased decisions than we would on our own. How, how would you respond to that sort of concern? I, I think that's that's right. I think that um, there is, of course, you know, if the AI developer has, you know, used, um, you know, inaccurate data or hasn't really um, gone through the right processes to ensure that, you know, that their system is, um, you know, as accurate as it can be, then there is onus on the AI developer. But there are many mechanisms available for that um, AI developer to show how they have trained that system, how they have ensured the accuracy of that system, things like impact assessments. So when a public sector entity is contracting with these um, private sector companies, making sure that they have uh, used some of these available mechanisms, because they are the ones who are contracting with all these different people. they have the ability to filter through to find the best one. And I think if the onus is on them to say, it's up to you to make sure that you are doing your due diligence uh, to contract with the right people, then there's an incentive for them to, to make sure that they are um, you know, working with the, with the best. Hoden Omar is a policy analyst at the Information Technology Innovation Foundation's Center for Data Innovation. We'll post a link to the paper we've been discussing at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was 
it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, 
we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.